0: Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Might make a start. So we are kind of starting Exodus today, but we're not actually going to read any of Exodus. We're going to um, do instead a character study of Moses, because Moses is the main character in um, the book of Exodus that we're going to find, read about. And I just wanted to go through who, you know, what was Moses like. And why was Moses so different to all the other people that we read about in the book of Exodus and the other books? And there's only a handful of people who are, I think are really noteworthy or, or faithful, which is like Moses, of course, and there's Joshua, and there's the midwives, and there's probably a couple of others. But um, there's not many. The majority of the people, like Joshua uh, Caleb, that's the other one, the majority of that first generation, they didn't make it. I didn't have faith. I didn't believe. It was a, a quite a a sad, sad story, it, and it was going to be quite just kind of depressing reading through it. But what we're going to see is from the point of view of the human point of view, it's depressing. But from God's point of view, and as we see God working things out, it's quite encouraging. So, and we can learn a lot from this. So, if you can open your Bibles to Psalm 103, I'll just pray, then we'll read. Father, thank you for your Your blessings. Thank you for what we're going to learn about your character today. Thank you for what we're going to learn about our motive for serving you and, uh, Lord, what separates Moses from all the other people. Help us to uh, really grasp this. And and as we go through the book of Exodus and and beyond, Lord, to realize that uh, it's not about knowledge. It's about a deeper understanding. It's about understanding the character of God. And I pray that we can learn more about your character today and how much you love us, and how we should respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 103 starts off by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, verse 7 and 8, we just pause here for a sec. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the children of Israel. Where does that next verse come from? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. We haven't got there yet, but if anyone's read ahead. Remember um, Moses says, show me your face. And what does God say? I can't show you my face, you'll die. But if I put you in the cleft of the rock, put my hand over you, and I'll pass by, then what does he say? God gives his a character reference for himself. He gives like an autobiography. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So His he made known his ways to Moses. This psalm, and I haven't really seen it this way before, but this psalm is like a character, a description of God's character. God made known his character, his ways to Moses, but but he didn't to the children of Israel. He only revealed his acts, his deeds to the children of Israel. They saw what he did, but they didn't understand his heart. We'll keep going from verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy, or the loving kindness, that word is, of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Just remember that verse his ways to Moses, that's his character, his his heart, and his acts or his deeds to the children of Israel. So the children of Israel could recite everything that they'd seen, every experience they'd been through. They lived through it, all the the, the plagues, the deliverances and all that kind of stuff, the, the, the food, the water, but they didn't understand God's heart. They missed the point completely, and that's a danger for us as Christians. We can understand what the Bible says, we can understand what is true, but we can miss the point, which is the heart of God. God is love. Why didn't they get it? The Bible says in Hebrews that their hearts were hard. They had hard hearts, they had unbelieving hearts. And as a result, and and as Christians, we can have hard hearts too. It's, It's a temporary state for us Christians sometimes. We can go through a time in our lives where we have hard hearts, and we forget. Who's ever forgotten anything before? So we can forget who God is. We can forget His character. We f- we can forget about His loving kindness. We know it in our head. We can say, "Yeah, God is love." You know, first on four twenty one, we f- got we f- we love God because He first loved us. We know those verses, but our lives don't reflect it sometimes. The people of Israel only did what they had to. They did the bare minimum, and they were always complaining and bitter. They never did anything with a thankful heart. Well there's a couple of things where they did they gave some things for the tabernacle with a thankful heart but but that's about it, unfortunately. So there's an important principle that we can learn here. It's one thing to know doctrine and truth, but it's another thing to understand God's heart. And I'd just like you to look up Revelation chapter two. This is a uh, a trap that we can fall into and uh and God puts this here as a warning for us. I know in my own life when I've Become loveless, I become like this, I test things, I make sure everything is absolutely perfect and I come down on people around me and if they're not perfect then I let them know. And what happens is I become like the law. I'm perfect and I start condemning people and then I need to repent, like this verse tells me it tells us. So Revelation chapter two, verses one through five, it says To the angel of the church of Ephesus right. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Now if we stop there this would be the ideal church. all right. But there's one really, really important thing that they're missing. Just check what they've done. Their works, labour, patience. From the outside, these guys are a hard-working church. They're reaching out to the community. They're, they're doing all kinds of ministries. As far as doctrine goes, they've nailed it. They, they nail the, those false apostles, those false teachers. No, we're not listening to them. We're only going to listen to what's true. They persevered, they labored, and they have not become weary. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The problem with this church was not what they were doing, but why they were doing it. It was their motivation that was wrong. Their motive was not love for God. Now there's other motives that I mentioned in the Bible, I won't go through all the verses, I'll just list them. Self-righteousness, legalism, reputation, selfish ambition, you know, Paul said some preach Christ out of selfish ambition. So my question today is, the challenge for us is very simple, what is our motivation today for serving in God's kingdom? I know that what I'm going to say today, you already know, but as Peter says and Paul says, I'm going to seek to stir you up to good works and to remember your first love, and also over the next few months, you will understand why Moses was so different to the rest of the people. Here's a little analogy for you. If I had a box, and I ask you to walk on the grass to the fence, and then someone else to bring it back, would you do it? people are shaking their heads people are saying would you take the box would you carry the box to the other side of the the, the field out there the the oval and then someone else bring it back not not so bad okay what about if I asked you to do it a hundred times what about if I said you had to do it while you are running and you weren't allowed to stop carry this so someone carries a box over the other side of the oval and then running, and then someone grabs it off, off, off the ground and brings it back. And then you get it off them and you take it back and you've got a hundred times in a row running. And you're going, no, thank you. Okay. Who do you think would do that? Do you think anyone would be willing to do that? Well, I can't, I wouldn't want to do it. I mean, I'm reasonably fit, but I still wouldn't want to do it. Why would I want to run a box across an oval? Okay. Let's change the situation. Let's say instead of a box, it's a football. Now, we ask some people, would you be willing to run the ball up one end of the field and then someone else run it back? And you do it a hundred times and you don't stop running. And they go, yeah, we love doing that. What's the difference? It's just motive, isn't it? They've got a reason for doing it. Okay? If you're motivated to do something, then it's not a problem. It doesn't matter if you're sore or you're injured. You, you push through the pain. You train, even if it's raining. Well, it's not, some people do. Other people are committed to different things. You know, art, music, family, building and fixing things, motorbikes, or doing up old cars. They put lots of money into these things. It could be their job, or for some, it could be things that aren't not so positive. It could be sex or drugs or alcohol. They've put so much time. Effort and money into the things that are important to them because they're motivated, they have a reason for it, so think about the football. why do some people do it for the you know play football, run up and down the field? Well, is it recognition? hey well done, Fred. That was a great mark. I never seen anyone jump that high before oh well, thanks bill it was it was a quite a good mark, wasn't it? Yeah, and I kicked the goal after. Don't forget that all right. Others put in the effort because they like being part of a team, because they like the camaraderie and the friendships they make. Others may play because they're committed to the sport and want to go higher. It's like a, you know, it's like a, an ambition. So the point is this: if we don't have a reason or motivation to do something, we just won't do it. We'll, we'll end up stopping, just like with the box. No one, no one interested in doing it. Now, sometimes we can rev people up, or people can get revved up. And we can motivate people to do something. You have a really motivating talk. You can sell ice to an Eskimo or a thick woolen jumper to a, someone in the desert, you know, because they get so worked up and say, oh, yeah, I'll do that. That's, that sounds great. That's a great idea. But is it? Why am I doing this? I soon stop and go back to their old ways. What motivates people in this world? There are some motivations like fear. So if you're a Muslim, for example, according to the Quran, if you're not a good enough Muslim, then you won't make it into Allah's heaven. You have to repeat certain prayers at various times during the day, keep certain rituals, dress a certain way, and keep lots of man-made rules. The cults, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, are very similar. And other religions are like this as well. And unfortunately, some churches too. It's called legalism. If you don't do enough good deeds, then you are a bad person. If you do enough good deeds, you're a good person. At least that's what they think in the eyes of the other people. So, you know, this causes self-righteousness where we can start to compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm okay because I'm better than Juliet over there. She smokes and I don't. And we start comparing ourselves to each other. Then there's the, the lust or the desires of the eyes. So for those Muslims who are suicide bombers, what, are they, what attracts them to do that? Well, they get all the women and wine they want in their heaven. What about those who don't believe in God, who say they're not religious? This is typical Western culture the majority of, well, probably the majority of most Australians, what motivates them? Well, whatever makes them happy, whatever makes them feel good, whatever gives them pleasure, regardless of what it costs in the long run. So in Western culture, this is the dominant motivation, it's called self-gratification. So one of their favorite lines is, if it feels good, then how can it be bad? Or something like that. There's lots of variations on that theme. Regarding the sin of homosexuality, for example, and living together when you're not married, it's called love. You know, how can love be wrong? How can drugs be wrong if it makes you feel good? And everybody's doing it. So, what a country's doing? They're legalizing drugs, especially marijuana and things like that. So, to sum up, the Bible describes it like this. The lust of the flesh... Whatever is pleasing for the body, alcohol, smoking, drugs, food, all those kind of things. The lust of the eyes, whatever looks good, pornography or a shiny new car. Or the pride of life, whatever makes us feel good about ourselves, power, position, prestige, reputation and money. So where does that come from? You guys probably know. First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. You look it up if you want. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I'm going to read from the New Living as well. It uses the word crave. It's a really good word for this. Do not love this this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and our possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Now, if you've read ahead, if you read Exodus before, guess what the people did? They craved. They craved the food, the lust of the flesh. Okay, And what you'll see in the, with the people of Israel is that they didn't have the love of the Father in them. They had the love of the world. They left Egypt, but Egypt didn't leave them. It's a good way of putting it. In Corinthians, they're called carnal Christians. So we have two choices. We can love the world and the things in the world, or we can love God. We can crave the things of the world, or we can crave God. We can choose to get pleasure from the world, or we can choose to find our pleasure in God. The big question is, what should motivate the Christian to leave the world behind and become a follower of Jesus? What could be more important than all the things that bring us pleasure? Sinful or not, some of them are good things, right? you know, family, uh, jobs, careers, things like that, sports. But when they become more important than God, they become idols. What could help us or cause us to abandon those things as, as being priorities in our life and make God the first priority? What could be so powerful a motivation that it causes a committed Christian to actually have joy in the midst of suffering, to experience peace as they go through hard times and even be willing to die for what they believe? What what what's the motivation? You know, about ten thousand Christians are martyred last year. Every every year, lately, the numbers is going up and up and up. In over fifty countries in the world today, to be a Christian means that your life is in danger. Throughout the world, millions of Christians are experiencing persecution for the sake of Christ. Pastors are imprisoned or killed for proclaiming the gospel in their churches and villages. Young people flee for their lives when their families discover they had been they have converted to Christianity. Believers are beaten, tortured and pursued. They are falsely accused, threatened, abused, starved, maimed and harassed. Their homes and churches are burnt down, their Bibles and Christian material confiscated and their businesses destroyed. They are expelled from school and college, fired from their jobs, treated as criminals and rebels, forbidden to evangelize and forced to meet and worship in secret. Now, for a rational person who doesn't know Christ, what they would be thinking, why would anyone want to live like this? Why would anyone choose that lifestyle well there's only one reason you'd put up with all that and it's simple it's love it's true genuine sacrificial unconditional unending unmeasurable indescribable love that's it and we read about it in lots of Bible passages, but I'm just going to pick one if you'd like to turn there at second Corinthians chapter five verse thirteen to fifteen. And this is the, the motive for what we do. This is why Moses could put up with the people for so long. And even he ran out of patience at one stage when he hit the rock. But God doesn't run out of patience, fortunately. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So now we have part of the answer. So our love for God is linked to Christ dying for us, which is also linked to living for God instead of living for ourselves. But if someone asked you, why should I live for Jesus just because he died on a cross 2,000 years ago? Why should I give up my life, my desires, my ambitions, my sin just for this guy who died 2,000 years ago? Why should one event in history change the direction of my life today? And that's the question that a lot of people have at Easter time. It's coming soon, right? People ask the question, you say, oh, Jesus died on the cross. And? (laughs) So, why does it matter? Well, we need to understand why Christ died. To properly understand this, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden and understand why God created us, what our ultimate purpose is, and also the effects of sin on us and on the world. So when God first made the world, it was perfect and good. Adam and Eve enjoyed a perfect relationship with God and with each other. Every day they would walk and talk in the Garden with God himself. God would teach them things and answer their questions as well as to share his heart, and they would express their love for each other. So, just for a minute, put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes for a little while. Can you feel the excitement, the thrill, the joy, the anticipation they would have experienced each day as I waited for God to come and walk in the garden with them? Wouldn't that be an awesome thing, to have unhindered fellowship with God? I imagine their hearts would have been bursting with joy. They would have been laughing and maybe been crying tears of joy. Each day, their love for their maker, their creator would have grown as they got to know him better and better. And this is what God desired. This is what God created Adam and Eve for. Like a sports car is made for a racetrack, a bird is made to fly, a fish is made to swim, and a horse is made to run. So people were created for one purpose and one purpose only, to enjoy a love relationship with God. That's it. Nothing else will satisfy, Jesus said to the woman at the well. If you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again, but the water I give you... If you drink that, you'll never thirst. You'll be fully satisfied. So the only way that Adam and Eve and you and me can be completely and totally satisfied, complete and fulfilled, is to be in that relationship with Jesus. Nothing can replace that glory and wonder of having a friendship with God. Now, it's taken me a long time to understand this as in my Christian walk. And even now I still get distracted by the things of the world my own fleshly desires, but I know and I've experienced for myself that the closer I am to God, the more I love Him, then the more fulfilled and complete and joyful I am. And it doesn't matter about circumstances. There's something that's on the inside and I'm walking in God's will and that's what God made me for and I'm complete, no matter what my circumstances might be. When we start to experience that, when we start to Put our trust in God and have our faith in God. Then we really just want more of that. And all the things of the world, which were so appealing to us, we don't want them anymore. They suddenly seem empty, worthless, and boring. What about the children of Israel? What were they concerned about? What were they going to drink? This manna is boring. I want some meat. I'm so concerned about their flesh. But well, let's get back to our story of Adam and Eve. Something terrible happened. There was a separation, a break in this perfect and beautiful relationship. Adam and Eve decided that they could no longer trust God, that God was holding some good thing back from them, that they should be able to choose for themselves what was right and what was wrong. In other words, instead of submitting to God's will for their lives, they wanted to take control of their own lives and live for themselves instead of living for God. They wanted to do what they wanted. They wanted to make the rules and they wanted to live life their own way. So Adam and Eve ate some of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and just as God had warned, they died. But hang on, some people might say, Adam and Eve were still alive. Did God lie? No. I mean, their hearts were still beating, they were walking and talking, but something had changed on the inside. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, in dying you shall die. So from that moment on, their body was cursed it started to age they started to die the aging process has started and eventually as we know they actually died it's called the curse the entire creation was cursed when adam and eve sinned when they were building against god today we see a creation that is falling apart that is winding down and we see death lots of death and what is death it's a reminder of the serious consequences of sin remember there was no death before sin now, the second way they died was a spirit was separated from God. The Bible calls this spiritual death or dead in sin. The reason for the separation is that God is completely perfect and holy. He cannot look upon or be around sin. Even though God still loved Adam and Eve, their sin had separated them from God. And if nothing was done about it by God, if they physically died while separated from God spiritually, they would remain separated from God for eternity. This is called the remember what it's called the second death. When people are cast into the lake of fire with the demons, the angels who rebelled against God—that's the second death. So, what would it be like living or spending eternity in the lake of fire? Well, it would be the opposite of living with God in heaven. Consider, God is a God of comfort; therefore, the, the lake of fire in the lake of fire there will be torment. Jesus described it as where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. You will experience a physical pain of being burnt by fire as well as a horrible sensation of being eaten by worms from the inside out, forever, for eternity. No escape, no second chances. God is light, so as the Bible describes a lake of fire, it will be a place of darkness. God is love, so the lake of fire will be full of hate. You will be absolutely miserable Think about how depressed and how down you felt when you were really angry and you just had a huge argument with someone, how painful that was with that, all that hate in your heart. That's how you're going to feel for eternity. In God's presence is joy and fulfillment. So in the lake of fire there will be everlasting sorrow, regret and emptiness. You'll be conscious and awake, constantly thinking of a missed opportunity that you had to follow Jesus. But instead, you live life to please yourself. Lastly, in God's presence is peace like a river. It says in Isaiah So in hell there will be fear the opposite of peace is fear you will live in constant fear and dread for eternity forever Doesn't sound very nice does it The lake of fire as you guys know is was created for the angels The angels didn't get a chance to repent there was no savior for them The moment uh at the moment a third of the angels rebelled or sinned against God they were eternally doomed Now they're still free to wa- to cause trouble now to wreak havoc But when God comes to redeem this world, fallen angels will be locked up in the lake of fire. They'll be there forever, and they won't be able to cause trouble anymore. Along with them will be the unsaved or unrepentant people. Now, it's important to understand that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell, to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Two times in the book of Ezekiel, God says, Turn and live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. However, if you really want to, if you choose to ignore God's warnings, if you despise his love for you, throwing it back in his face, and you can face the same awful judgment as the fallen angels. It's not God's will for you, but you have been given free choice. You get to make your own decision. But you say, I thought God was a God of love, a good God. And yes, he is. And it is because of how loving and good God is that he hates sin so much. So listen to the following story your best friend has just been kidnapped raped tortured for weeks before finally being buried alive the person who did this this monster is caught and it is discovered that they have tortured and killed hundreds of people the guilty person goes to court to face this day of judgement and all the families of all these hundreds of people are outside the courtroom imagine this scene and they're demanding justice they're mourning over the death of their loved ones now The guilty person says to the judge, Hey judge, I'm really sorry. I promise I won't do it again. And the judge says, Yeah, okay. You can go free. Can you imagine the riots that would happen if that happened today? People want justice. Why do we want justice? Because we have been created in the image of God. Now, our, that image has been corrupted, but that part of it is still there. It, it's, it's less than what it should be, but it's still there. Justice is a consequence of being good. We still have some goodness in us. We, we, we're corrupted, yes, but as human beings, we still expect justice. It's part of being made in the image of God. So if we want justice for people who have broken the law... And we're corrupted and that desire is a lot less than it should be. How much more does God want justice for people who have broken his law? If God is infinitely loving, then he is also infinitely angry with sin. Hebrews 10.31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus says in Matthew 10.28 Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body, they cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You might say now, well, I'm not a mass murderer, I'm a good person. The problem is that God's standard is perfection and none of us are perfect. The Ten Commandments tell us what God expects of us. So we have Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Have you put your put God first in every part of your life for your entire life? Can anyone say yes to that? <laughs> of course not. Nobody has. Commandment number two, you shall not have any idols. Have you ever had anything in your life that is more important than God? Number three, do not blaspheme God's holy name. Have you used God's name as a swear word, the, the OMG thing, on text and th- things like that, as an example? Command number four, keep the Sabbath day holy. Have you set aside one day a week, Now it doesn't matter what day, but one day a week to worship God with other believers? Or at least a time during the week? Have you honored God with your time? Uh, Number five, honor and obey your parents. Have you always obeyed and honored your parents? Well, I don't think any child completely honors and obeys their parents. So we've all broken the fifth commandment. Number six is do not murder. That's okay. I haven't done that one. But wait, (laughs) there's more. Um, Jesus said that if you hate someone, you have murdered them in your heart. Have you ever hated anyone? If you've hated someone, you're a murderer in God's eyes. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Again, I haven't done that one yet. You might be thinking, but wait. Jesus said that if you lust after women in your heart, then you have committed adultery. So if you've ever dwelt on a lustful thought, then you are guilty of committing adultery. You are an adulterer in God's eyes. So, command number eight, do not steal. Even if you have only stolen something very small, you are guilty of breaking the eighth commandment. You are a thief, someone who steals things. Number nine, do not lie. Even if you have only told one lie in your whole life, you are a liar, someone who tells lies. Number ten, do not covet. This means to want something that doesn't belong to us. It means we're not satisfied with what God has for us. It could be money or sporting ability or musical ability. Anything that we want, that we desire, that someone else has, that God hasn't given us. We're breaking the 10th commandment. So here we have a massive problem. God loves people, but he hates sin and must judge sin because he is a good God. Just like that other judge, he would be a bad judge if he let that mass murderer go free he was a good judge, he would convict him to like a million years in prison, okay? You think about all the crimes that he committed. We have all broken God's laws and therefore we all deserve to go to hell and suffer for eternity because when we break God's laws, we hurt people when we hurt God. God seems to be in a bit of a bind here. It's a bit of a problem. He created man to live forever with him, but because God is a good and fair judge and every human being has sinned, then every person is under God's judgment. Every person deserving of spend eternity in the lake of fire. Nahum 1, three, The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. So that's the bad news. We're all guilty and deserve to be punished. But the gospel is the good news. The gospel tells us how God could be a good God and judge sin, but at the same time let guilty sinners go free. How did he do it? 2 Corinthians 5.21 What does that one say? Do you remember that one? For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God came to earth as a man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and then willingly volunteered to take our place for punishment when he died on the cross. The whipping, the torture, the ridicule, the false accusations, the betrayal, the crucifixion, we had all that coming. That was for us. Every one of us was deserving of that because we have all breaking God's law. We all had the wrath of God over us. We were like in death row waiting for the, the, the our day of judgment. But God stepped in and Jesus paid our fine. He paid the penalty or payment for the sins of the whole world. All God's righteous wrath and anger was poured out on Jesus. Jesus suffered my punishment and yours. He didn't have to. We don't deserve it, but because God loves us so much and wanted us to live with him forever, he was willing to experience unbelievable suffering and pain. So now we have a choice. Second Chronicles thirty verse eight. Do not be stubborn, but submit yourselves to the Lord. Worship the Lord God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 2, 5-8. Read read this one together. This is um, Paul talking about sin. It says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger on wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. So, we now come back to our starting question. What is the motivation for a Christian to turn from their sins, repent and do what Jesus wants them to do instead of doing what they want to do, to have their own way? Well, 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Uh, The New Living Translation says it this way, Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. So keeping God's commands are not burdensome. When we have the love of God in our hearts, when we understand what he's done for us, it's not a burden, it's something we want to do. If a suicide bomber is willing to blow himself up for the promise of wine and women, how much more should we be willing to follow Jesus and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, out of our appreciation for what God has already done for us? He has literally saved us from eternal death and punishment. Shouldn't we be thankful? Isn't this the natural thing to do, to love someone who first loved us? And that's why his commands are not burdensome or difficult. When you love someone, you're willing to do anything for them. Think about your families. Think about your kids. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your kids. You Sacrifice anything for your kids. Well, if we have a love, that kind of love for the Father, the same kind of love that He had for us, where He was willing to suffer and die on the cross to pay for our sins, then we can respond to Him with that kind of love. And that makes our life just it's like floating on air so to speak, if you kind of understand that, it's not burdensome at all, it's just easy, because we want to do it. That's why the, um, Paul said, the love of Christ compels and motivates us. He went through so much stuff, you know, shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and all, all that kind of stuff. So th- come back to my original question, does the love of Christ compel or motivate you? If not, it's because you don't understand or appreciate what He has done for you, or you've forgotten Ask God to help you to understand or to remember just how much he's done for you, how much he has loved you, how much he has given you, how much he has sacrificed for you. And if you're not already saved, then the first step is to recognize you're a sinner, that you are guilty of breaking God's perfect law and are deserving of death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. second step is to repent of your sins and ask for forgiveness, to accept that God has paid our fine, that because God Jesus took the punishment for my sin, God the Father can legally let me go free because justice has been served, the fine has been paid. I can now experience friendship with God again. God is both a good judge and a loving Father. The third step is to keep walking with God, to read the Bible, to pray and spend time with other believers. The more we love God, the easier it is to obey God. The more we obey God, the more we love Him. And it's just an upward spiral. It just keeps getting better and better. Life gets better and better even though the circumstances may get worse and worse. That's a paradox of being a Christian. Circumstances don't matter. What goes on in our heart, what fulfills us, is completely independent of circumstances. So just to finish off, if we love someone, we will do anything for them, and it won't be burdensome, it won't seem hard, it won't feel like a chore. The more we understand what God has done for us, how he has given for us and sacrificed for us, the more willingly we will serve him, and not grudgingly. We will obey because we want to, not because we have to. The Christian life is a response to God's love for us, not something we do to earn God's love. And just finish with the verse from 1 John. We love God because God first loved us. Father, I just thank you, Lord. Very simple message today, but Lord, It's just so important to come back to the basics sometime. We're going to see in Exodus um, a whole lot of people who just didn't get it. They didn't have faith. And um, and they, they just missed it completely. They missed the whole reason for living. They missed a personal relationship with you. Moses experienced it and a few others did. Like Joshua who spent time in your presence. Lord, help us to be people who spend time in your presence. Help us to be people who love you. And Lord, to grow in our love for you on a daily basis, Lord, so we can, when we, um, when it comes to choosing you over things of the world, it's an easy choice because we want you more than we want the things in the world. Help us, Father, to be faithful to you more and more and so we don't let you down so much so we don't grieve your Holy Spirit. And uh, But we do thank you for your promise that you'll be faithful to us even if we're not faithful to you because you can't deny yourself. We thank you, Father, for who you are. thank you for your character. We thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And that, Lord, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. We just thank you so much for who you are. Help us not to forget in Jesus' name. Amen.